Hello folks and welcome to episode 2 of our appropriately seasonal chiller The Ghosts of Christmas Past Now in our first episode we saw Mary homeless in Glasgow and afflicted by a, a loss of memory after a, a violent assault being offered shelter for the Christmas season by Good Samaritan Dr Ewan Craigie. Yes, shelter in his grand house on the snow-mantled Isle of Arran. She seems set already for a, for, for a seasonal happy ending. Oh, and as for that, uh, that snowman outside, which uh, seemed just for a moment to be, uh, to be moving to be uh, approaching the house. Well, well, that was just a, a trick of the moonlight, surely. Anyway, treated to a generous dinner, Mary ventures to inquire as to how a man as, as decent as the doctor comes to be living all alone in that isolated location. What happened to his wife and children, who he says he lost three Christmases ago. Dr Craigie takes a deep breath, a swig of port, and decides to tell her his story. And folks, we have a lot of thrills and chills to get through this week, so I, I suggest we let the good doctor get on with it. It was... Twelve years ago, on a trip to the island here, that I met her. She was not, perhaps, precisely the sort university society would envision as bride for a man of my status, but she had a, a spirit about her to, to evoke the wild breezes I loved so hereabouts, and well, hers seemed a, a respectable enough family. So we married. And when her ailing father died, her family farm was bequeathed to me. I cleared the land and had this place built, just in time for the birth of our two children, a girl and, a year later, a boy. They lived here in this, this paradise, more paradisal still when the snow is gone and the grass is green. And the mountains and sea shine with summer sun. And I was here with them naturally, whenever my duties on the mainland allowed. An idyll it was. Until, like the greenest Eden, it showed its serpent. My wife, it turned out, had a cousin not strictly legitimate and previously unknown to me, though it turned out that in their youth he and my wife had, had shared a bond more than common between blood kin. A bond indeed that had seen him in young manhood, cast out by his own family. In his banishment he had lived a, a rough life in and out of prisons and other such brutal places. But during one of my absences on the mainland, 
the sparrow found his way to our island door, and, with a devil's haste, back into his cousin's affections. I returned to find what seemed at first no more nor less than a, a family reunion. The fellow had fairly charmed my children and worked hard on charming me. It was only slowly that my deeper suspicions grew. Till there came a day, a, a week or so before Christmas, when amid a, a less than strictly Presbyterian celebration of and decoration for the season, much encouraged by our guest, who was in scant hurry to say goodbye to our hospitality, I I stumbled across. Oh, oh there's a lapse from Christian propriety, perhaps, in a heathen Christmas tree, or a Romish singing dedicated to Christ's Mass. But it was a coarser, more absolutely profane lapse, I stumbled upon that day between my my wife and her quasi-cousin. I should not want to encourage you in, in picturing the sight that met me, or the outrage with which I met it in turn. But the outcome was my, my casting the scoundrel from my house then and there, and his going with the, with the foulest curses. I slammed the door upon him, and thought that the end of it, of at least the worst of it, but, like a curse's creature, he came a-haunting. That night, and the very next day, and for, for, for days after that, in the snow outside he was, in the trees neighbouring when the children were at play, tapping at windows when he thought I was not in the room, beckoning, beckoning, beckoning not only my bride, but my, my babes too, my own flesh and blood for his spell was fast upon them too, and the spell worked. Christmas Day saw them with cases packed, sitting forth from the house in his company, a hired carriage, waiting them to, to carry them to, to dock and ferry, and who knows what wilderness of conduct over on the mainland. I, I tried to stop them, they, they would not be stopped. The fellow having, having poisoned their minds against me, uh, talking as, a, as, a, as if I were the encapturing monster and he the saintly rescuer when I, when, I, when I challenged him directly, threatening him, I confess, with the violence the moment had fired me to, he, he showed himself the more practised hand where such things were concerned, drawing a knife and threatening to, to scald the cold snow red. I confess I was momentarily... Overwhelmed by his persuasive barbarity, I saw him shove my loved ones aboard the carriage. Together they trundled off for the harbour. By the time I had stirred myself and, and sorted out my means of pursuit, my, my arrival at the quayside beheld nothing but the steaming of the ferry into the distance. Oh, naturally, I sought to redress and rescue. I, I made my own hastening to the mainland, my own search for my lost ones, and, and when those efforts proved too, too amateur, enlisted a detective, himself a coarse creature, but the, the kind of fellow who might 
know the byways our bastardised cousin might take. But it was of no avail. Where had they gone? Past their disembarking from the ferry, no one knew. No one has enlightened me to this day. You might imagine not only my loss, but my my embarrassment amid the exalted society my professional status had won me. To lose wife and children, and to a, to, to, to a creature so base. Why, my, my own innocence, my victimhood in the matter made me as, as shocking a spectacle as he would have been strutting the halls of the university though he would have been a horned devil. <laughs> well, what was I but a, a horned and cuckolded fool? I could hear the jokes that were made as I passed, catch the, uh, the nudgings and glancings and sneers that saw me go. The merest freshman in my anatomy lectures had me for an old fool, and the lesson I taught, hardly the lesson I, I sought to teach it, it all became all too much. I began a slow but steady retirement from my professional duties, a, a retreat here. Here where the worst had happened, perhaps, but where prying eyes, mocking humour and gossiping tongues were easiest to keep at a distance. Yet a man may shut himself far clear of public humiliation and find that private place a spot for for quieter, deeper pains. I, I got rid of the servants for fear they might chatter in my earshot and thus thus found myself alone as the, as the barest bush on the mountains up there. Only the colder winds off the sea for, for fit company my... My engagement in Glasgow yesterday, the, the presentation of that scalpel case, was the, the final settling of my accounts with my old mainland life. I, I knew I was returning here to the, to the profoundest solitude, and that scared me, I dare say, as much as anything I had been through at, at, at this time of year, most of all. And so I dawdled in the city, and thus by chance encountered you, and the thought, the selfish and monstrous thought of, 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 of purloining your company through this coldest season at least, seized hold of me. Your company as here, innocent as this, and nothing more. But the conceit of that is, I confess, a crime of my own to have in my head. I, I excuse you in advance for not forgiving me. Oh, sir! Mary had drawn back her chair, stepping to wear amid the fire's fullest heat, his tall figure hunched against the mantle, as if his heart were at an arctic distance from the hearth. She laid a soft hand upon his shoulder. He turned swiftly, seized the hand, stared at her, as if some flame had started up in his snow-bound soul, his other hand caressed a loose lock of her hair from the side of her face. And here's the thing, he said, perhaps the most ludicrous thing of all, 
that if she, my wife, should step across that threshold a, a, a minute from now, our children in tow, but not a word of explanation or apology offered, I, I swear I would embrace her tight and make a future with her full as sweet as I once took our shared past to be foolish. Aye, foolish indeed. But what man can hide from the fact of the man he is? No island lies quite far enough across the streets of his own spirit. Now, please, if you've eaten your fill, please uh, be my guest and hasten to bed for that good night's sleep we both know you're in sore need of. Uh, uh, please, uh, don't worry about any of this here. Uh, I shall tidy up. He was already lifting plates and cups off the table, carrying them towards that doorway at the rear of the room. Mary stood watching him pass from sight, wondering if she if she ought to, to insist on, on helping him, wishing there was some more essential way she could, she could reach out to the sorrow he had laid so bare before her. But she was who she was, and the same applied to him, and it was hardly the done thing for her to, to show him a kindness. He wasn't paying her a wage to perform. She was turning away to start up towards what she was now quite sure would be an undisturbed rest. On every light, every candle and lamp in the room was blown out. Even the flames in the fireplace snuffed in a second to vague curlings of blue smoke. Her first thought as a muffled, curtained moonlight fell about her was that some gust of winter wind had blown open a window or a door, but no, no. What wafted, swift, past her in that instant was no breeze, but a sound like the faintest echo of a childish laughter. Everything in that rear room to which the doctor had retreated had gone dark likewise, the doorway black as deep water. From somewhere in that obscurity she caught the sound of a, a glass shattering of the doctor crying out under his breath. Then she heard another sound from the from the other end of the room, a, a low, rattling scraping, like that of bare branches scratching some nearby point in the building's fabric. She she swivelled that way, looking to where curtains were drawn tight across what were plainly French windows for the moon shining outside cast shadows of the panels across the fabric. But amid those shadows, slightly off to one side, was another shadow, 
more lumpish and irregular. Hunched and rather short, it seemed to to shift about slightly while remaining in, in more or less the same position, some scraggly length of it seeming to to rattle around the point where the two central French windows met. Was it? She wondered. A man? A man trying to get in? She stepped forward. A man? Surely not. The the silhouetted shape was too too short to be that of a man. A, a man on his knees? Or a child even? Some great stout child she recalled her earlier thoughts about, about children trespassing on the estate to build. Another thought entirely seized her. As much to discount it as a possibility as anything else, she she now strode forward, yanked back the curtain directly before the shadow. On the other side of the leaded panes, a squat figure, plump, bone pale, but shadowed by the moonlight at its back, pressed itself tight against the glass. So tight that whole curds of its face broke away and slid down the pane, even while a black eye and a toothy mouth sneered her way, an arm extended alongside, catching at the handle of the nearmost French window, with fingers like the barest bones. It was... It was the snowman, somehow come to life and striving to fight its way in. She retreated swiftly from that impossible but inescapably real sight, only to, to collide with another figure. There in the dark she turned, even as it clutched her, it was. It was Dr. Craigie. He was looking past her to the French windows. It's, she began, making her own swivel back that way and pointing towards... But the snowman was not there. Nothing visible through the glass panels. But the slow fall of snowflakes in the moonlight outside. She pulled free of him, hurried back to the glass, he following close at her shoulder. The snowman stubbornly refusing to come back into view anywhere amid a thickening fall of snowflakes. But, 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 but there was, she said, only to break off again. I think you'd, you'd best get to bed, he said. That moon out there, well, it's enough to make anyone see anything. Go on, uh, light yourself a lamp. She voiced the first breath of a protest. But his gaze was cast outward. The silvery light seemed to freeze his face into something forbidding as the hard clench of winter outside. He was clutching one hand with the other, blood oozing from a shallow cut on his right palm. His blood looked quite black in the moonlight. She shivered anew, lost for 
anything to do but but turn away and steal back up to bed, grabbing a lamp in the hallway and lighting it with a match from a box alongside on the sideboard. Hearing her stumble up the stairs, Dr. Craigie turned his gaze briefly to a panel on the window just below on his right, where a damp crust of snow still clung to the glass. He looked back out onto the moonlit scene before him, suffering a shudder of his own at what he saw there. But what he saw was no snowman. He tugged at the curtains tight shut. Even having resisted the temptation to reopen her own curtain in the room given her, it took Mary, understandably, some wire to get to sleep. But eventually, long days worth of exhaustion, combined with the deep softness and warmth of the bed, to send her slipping into the profoundest slumber. There were dreams in those depths, though dreams which, on waking, she could recall only in terms of the, the vaguest entrapments and escapings, hastenings and hidings and catchings and clawings and tearings free, wanderings in the dark and reachings for the light. But when she woke, slowly and Oh, so comfortably. To an unmistakable sheen of sunlight behind the closed curtains, all thought of any dream or reality more troublesome than the blissful comfort to, what, to which she woke was banished. She rose, now somewhat more bold about opening that curtain, letting herself be all but, all but dazzled by the brilliance beyond of blue sky, naked sunshine and radiant white snow. The sheer welcoming beauty of these, working her up to the confidence to look sharp down, to survey the snowy lawn below for, for signs of a shambling figure with its own dreadful kind of whiteness. But the snowman was nowhere to be seen. She dressed and descended, made her way to the dining room. Here too curtains had been opened upon the bright and benevolent scene outside. The table now laid with all the accoutrements of a hearty breakfast including fresh bread and fruit and cheese and biscuits, plus rashers of bacon laid out uncooked and eggs uncracked. And next to a note from the doctor explaining that he, he had had to go to the nearby village of Corrie to pay the little woman who stocked his larder in his absence. In the meantime, she should avail herself of his kitchen and larder to, to prepare all the breakfast she desired. 
Alongside the note was a, a key for the front door, uh, saying that should she opt to go out and enjoy the bright morning, he would see her when she got back. It was a fulsome breakfast indeed that she prepared. All those accumulated days and weeks indeed, months of hunger, still needing a sound burial. And as she ate, the sun shone into the room all the brighter, lending even this depth of winter a, a, a hint of outright warmth, so that by the time she had finished and washed and tidied away all the crockery and cutlery used, the thought of that walk in the wide open had quite seized hold of her. The wardrobe upstairs furnished her with a, a warm coat and scarf and a, a sleek, elegant pair of boots, far better equipped to cope with the snowy ground than her tattered old pair. Thus dressed, she descended the stairs again, took the key from the table and let herself out. The snowman was standing waiting for her at the foot of the front steps. At first glimpse of it, she had to fight the urge to, to dart back inside and slam and lock the door. But, but, but that, was, that was nonsense. There, in the morning sunshine, and without a hint of actual movement about it, it was, it was plainly nothing, nothing but the, the childish rolling and heaping of snow she had taken it for in the first place. However startling its, its placement on that precise spot, easing the door shut at her back, she, she descended to, to step around it, evaluating its, its sheer innocuousness. Yes, yes, it was, it was, it was the simplest, most straightforward of snowmen, two, two rolled lumps of snow set with the smaller on top of the larger, a, a vertical line of stones set into the lower to form buttons, two lumps of coal fixed in the higher to form black eyes, a great malformed carrot, all whiskers and spots of black mould making a nose, two matched lines of white quartz pebbles tracing a toothy grin. A tartan scarf had been wound around the meeting point of the two lumps of snow and a, a battered black hat set skewiff on the top of it all. Two narrow lengths of branch took the place of arms stretched to either side. The outermost forkings of the dead grey wood serving for skeletal fingers that the, the memory, the, the, the apparent image anyway of these appendages seeming to, to catch at the handle of the French windows was the, was the hardest thing to put from her mind. But, but what stood before her now was so plainly incapable of movement, let alone thought, still less the malice. She thought to have to have seen in it the night before that she could only only dismiss what she had seen or thought herself to have seen as some strange dream. Her exhausted mind had suffered while she seemed still awake. Whatever had happened, this was plainly a morning for setting nightmares behind her. 
and so she set off, at first following the line of clear, deep footprints the doctor's departure had left in the snow. She could see the prints pass directly by the snowman, with no clear trace of their having stopped thereabouts as she had. Had the snowman been there when when he left? But, but there she was, giving way once again to, to fancies that seemed nonsensical in the sunlight. And so she walked on, and did her best to think no more of it. It seemed, moreover, a morning and a landscape to make anything harsh or monstrous or entrapping in the world seem but a bad dream, fit for nothing better than forgetting. Looking one way, she saw mountains soar high above her, rugged flanks and jagged ridges softened with snow. A great broad-winged bird skimming the line between a rocky edge and vibrant blue sky. And turning in the other direction, she could see, past a, a few clumps of trees, the gleaming spread of the sea, and even a, a faint white strip of mainland on the other side. And all the privations and terrors she had suffered on that mainland seemed so far away suddenly as to be like some some awful fairy tale tailored for, for scaring the life out of innocence which she had now wisely cast aside. The better to walk forward into a reality far more magical not least in its power to make her feel innocent all over again. She continued towards the dense woodland, stretching broadly in the gap between the rear of the house and the foot of the nearest mountain slopes, urging her snow-crunching steps into the thick of the trees. Therein, the morning sun shone through a dense lattice of boughs wrapped and heaped in whitenesses until that snow began to, to blaze a soft shade of gold. Misty rays of the same hue falling about the forest floor in the thinnest ribbons. An occasional winter bird flitting from ray to ray but Mary's own wanderings seeming otherwise the sole movement upon the face of the earth. Until, that is, a, a clump of snow lining one of the higher branches, warmed a, a little too much by the sun, slipped from its perch not far behind her, hitting the snowy ground with a dull thump. She looked sharply round, a thick flutter of flakes in the air just above the rough white lump the ground had gained reassuring her as to the harmlessness of the disturbance. But then, as she turned to continue forward, 
her eye caught on on another hint of movement, this darker than the general snowy whiteness, or even the grey tree trunk it had seemed to to dart behind. Again, all was still. But the stillness now whispered of the sorts of danger she thought this radiant morning had set far behind her. And then the thought occurred to her that it might be Dr. Craigie, and she called out, eager for reassurance, uh, Hello? H Hello, Doctor? No one answered. Nothing responded. The snowy silence and stillness of the woodland reasserted itself. She stood for long seconds, staring at the area where she thought she had seen the movement, though now she was unsure which tree trunk exactly she had taken the brief movement as disappearing behind. No further movement declared itself, but she she wondered if it if it mightn't be a, a good idea to be to be wandering back to the security of the house. And the problem with this, however, was that the the area where she had glimpsed the movement lay directly between her and the house. And the next step she took, a, a, a cautious step in that very direction, saw another flit a movement from behind one tree to the rear of its neighbour. She, she whirled about, began a, a swift stride through the snow in the opposite direction, glancing back over her shoulder, but again seeing nothing and having to, to patch together in her, her racing mind what exactly it was she had seen a moment before. A, 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 a man's figure, a, a, a deer, a, a dog, a large dog, a, a bear. Did, 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 did they have such things as bears on Aaron? Wolves or, or no? No, no, she didn't want to think about that that, that, that other possibility and so she concentrated on, on, on striding onward fast as she could. As she went, she made further glancings back, though none of them betrayed any further movement she could spot. All the same, she pressed on, wanting the fullest possible distance between herself and what she had glimpsed already. A further few backward looks, however, fruitless still, and the seemingly endless profusion of grey trunks and white boughs and ground about her made her begin to consider the possibility of her, of her, of her getting lost, and the possibility that this might be as dangerous as direct encounter with what she had seen at her back. But there, there, ahead, lay some clearing, with a, a hint of a, a, a snow-rimmed grey structure within it. She, she hastened into that opening, and then, after another glance behind, had to draw back sharply, for she had almost stepped over the rim, paved and flush with the forest floor of the outsized stone basin of an ornamental fountain, the basin itself sunk below ground level to a depth of some eight or ten feet. From the centre of that basin rose a tall and intricate sculpture, too crusted with snow for its every baroque ornamentation to be visible, 
but plainly bearing a, a, a profusion of plump dolphins and stony mermaids. Plus something like a, a rearing stag near the top. No water was flowing, though daggers of ice hung here and there down from the curves and angles of the sculpture. The basin empty of all but a thick lining of snow, unbroken save where, at one point just below her, some kind of great iron ring dimly protruded through its own covering of snow. Mary had been so struck by the, uh, the appearance of this structure that she had, for a second, put to the back of her mind all that had driven her there. But now, distinctly, not far behind, she heard a, a low crackle of dead branches being pushed aside. The crumple and creak and slushy displacement from some weighty form inching forward across the snow. She knew with a shiver, a prickling within her rich woman's clothing, attributable to something other than the chill in the air that that a figure was shifting into a position directly at her back. And then she felt its bony fingers scrape her shoulder. She whirled about her arm, flailing in a panic, the back of her hand colliding with a skull-like head. The head flew from the shoulders, bouncing and rolling upon the snowy ground below. She looked from the severed head back to the still upright body, a tartan scarf that had been about its neck now, snaking likewise to the ground. It was the pattern of the crumpling scarf more than anything, which woke her to a full realisation of what she confronted. It was the snowman. His carrot nose and quartz teeth leering up at her. His battered hat having roared to one side. She looked closer at the nearmost set of, of twig fingers. Those which had presumably touched her shoulder then. Then reached tentatively out touched them, finding them lifeless and brittle and hardly capable of the, the calculated seizure she had attributed to them. She, she turned back to the head for the corner of her eye and caught an impression of the fallen lump somehow, somehow winking at her. Stepping closer above it, she, she, she saw a simple explanation for this in the fact that it had lost one of its coal lump eyes, this leaving a deeply indented and shadowy socket in the white snow. Even so, something about that 
Apollo Gap continued to fix her attention with its blankness, as if her full gaze was was missing something her sidelong glimpse had done a better job of registering. She reached down, lifted the snowy lump, turned it slightly this way and that in the sunlight to see if she might thus clarify her her discomfort with it and, and what she saw as the crisp light cut down into that snowy pocket was a human eye set deep in the little pit of compressed snow staring up at her with a blue fixity to match that of the sky above. And then, as if to mock her attention, the eye gave a sharp blink. She gasped, hurled the snowy head from her grasp, hitting the ground a second time. It, it broke into a mess of flakes and clumps. From one clump, the eye still stared up at her. Even as she registered this, her own eye shifted upward to where, not far off among the trees, a distinct dark flicker of movement had declared itself, darting from the back of one tree trunk to another. A man's figure, and most definitely not the doctor's. She turned about, ran on almost, pitching herself a second time over the edge of the fountain's sunken basin, before hurrying on around its perimeter and then, and then throwing herself onward into the thick of the next set of trees, her sprint so headlong it here and there sent her slipping, stumbling, falling, chillingly to hands and knees, snow spattering her face, clinging in the curls of her hair, even as she, she struggled upright and hurried on faster. Glances over her shoulder were frequent, but, but too swift to give her any clear idea of whether she was being followed or not, and how closely the trunks and boughs of the forest seeming to, to leap and spin around her in a kind of taunting dance. A roar, a rumble began to resound. Was it her own panicked blood rattling in her head and her heart? Just ahead she glimpsed another, slighter, narrower break in the trees, but no, saw no hint of anything there that might help her hide or escape. She risked a fuller look over her shoulder. This showed no trace of the figure she thought was pursuing her. But even that was alarming, for if he was not there in her line of sight, then where was he? And then the ground was dropping from beneath her and she was falling, tumbling, sorely bouncing, dizzily rolling down, down some rough slope of rock and, rock and turf. That roaring sound, louder, 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 something that felt like an icy rain spattering her. She, she, she rolled to a stop, winded, seeing a great torrent of black water crested with dirty white foam roar immediately past her hurling its spray in her face voicing the torrential roar that had been sounding in her head for some seconds before she had fallen she now saw 
down the steep bank of this bloated burn, landing on a slender line of turf at the water's edge. Regathering her breath, trying to ignore the the twinge of numerous bruises, she, she wondered which way to go next. Fording the burn to its far bank would soak at least the lower half of her, so deep was it flowing and might see her swept clean off her feet, so swift was it rushing among its rocks on its downhill course, and climbing back the way she had come, would surely carry her back towards that which she was fleeing. Even so, she she risked a slow climb back up the slope, far enough to, to raise her eyes, past the edge she had slipped over, and and scan the nearby trees for the position of her pursuer. A second later she was letting herself slip and swiftly back down the slope, having seen distinctly the dark shape of the figure she had fled, lurching its way this way and that among the trees, unrushed, and seemingly trying to discern where she might have disappeared to. In the space of that preceding second, she had registered him as, as little more than a, a dark and ragged-looking silhouette, the hair at his head wild as that of a beast, a beast sniffing out her scent. Back at the water's edge, she opted to, to hurry her way downstream at that lower level as far as she could. Just ahead, trees overhung the steep bank so sheerly that their roots, exposed by previous crumblings of the bank, hung down exposed. Possibly offering a hiding place or two, she began fighting her way into the into the mesh of hanging roots, having to having to bow low to make a, a route through their intricacy, which was like that of grotesquely outsized and dust thickened spider webs. But a, but a few inches in, this hunching and struggling saw her slipping, slipping back onto her, her, her hands and knees. Immediately before, before an object tangled in, almost clutched tight by the lower roots, as if it had been washed downstream at some point when the burn's waters flowed even faster and higher, becoming caught there and stranded on the bank when the waters receded. It was a doll's house, an outsized affair, standing there at a skewed angle, its wooden facade painted white, as if in imitation of Dr. Craigie's grand house on the other side of the woods. But mosses and muddy stainings and clingings of silt and weed, green and brown and black, had discoloured it in many places. The little glass windows soiled a muddy and impenetrable hue. She found herself impulsively reaching forward for the little metal catch 
itself stained a coppery green at one side of the front of the house. Unlatching it and drawing the whole house front open on its hinges. A wealth of muddy water spilled from the interior in which it had been long bottled, washing, stinking about her hand and her skirts before seeping back into the waters of the burn alongside. She looked upon the two-storied cross-section of the house's interior, its few remaining scraps of furnishing all blotched and stained and broken, overgrown with mosses and heaped with scraps of weed and silt and shingly stones. Much of the water inside had now drained away, but along the lowermost angle of the tilted reception room on the ground floor lay a thin puddle of greenish-grey water. Some slender objects heaped half in and half out of that water-like why did she think of waterlogged corpses heaped in a ditch? She she reached inside, fumbled at the objects, shuddering with distaste at the at the feel of their clammy brittleness. She she raised them from the water, holding them dripping before her gaze using a finger of her other hand to to spread them out across her flattened palm and fingers in such light as filtered through the weavework of exposed roots above her head she could see that it was a mother and her two children or, rather, three short lengths of wood, li little better than, than, than clothes pegs, crudely carved into the, the barest semblance of such figures, and dressed in scraps of clothing which likewise only, only vaguely resembled a long black dress, a boy's sailor suit, a puffed-out white frock for the posher sort of little girl to play in, a pink bow at the waist. Not only soiled and saturated, the, the fabric hung fraying and threadbare, but it was the, the heads of the figures that most disturbed her. Some attempt had been made at painting a, a semblance of hair upon them, though only the most stubborn flakes still clung there while the features below had been sculpted with the, the crudest hackings of a chisel's corner. A few rough, shallow chippings, horizontal or vertical, implying brows, nose, mouth. They seemed less faces than tiny clusterings of scar tissue.
and then one or other of them seemed to to move to to wriggle upon her palm slimy as, as a newt with a gasp of disgust she hurled them all back into the doll's house interior as they rolled back down into that thin line of puddled water Mary drew back wriggling her way out from under the overhanging roots and onto the more open bank thoughts of her human pursuer momentarily less disturbing than the impression the doll's house had made on her But no sooner was she clear of the tree roots than another impression stole upon her, this time from behind. It came first as an overwhelming smell of, of wet things rotting. Then as the sound of, of pebbles pebbles at the water's edge rattling, clinking against one another as slow, weighty steps dislodged them. Then as the passing across her in the bright winter sunlight of a thin and lengthy shadow, and then a second shadow, and a third the stench grew overwhelming. She she turned there, there, close at her back, hard to see properly at first. So so dazzlingly did the December sun shine past them from, from above and behind. Stood the very figures she had just been holding in her hand. But now, somehow swelled to a full human size or even a, a height exaggerated beyond the figure of the woman in her black dress seeming all of of seven or eight feet high the children either side of her the boy in the sailor suit the girl in the frayed white dress with the pale pink bow standing to a height that might have come close to matching Mary's own, were she not still on her knees. And as all three of them lurched closer, 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 reaching out for her, she saw that their, their bare feet and hands were no more than lumps of gnarled wood, chisel-hacked, towards the roughest semblance of toes and fingers. She looked up at the faces as they emerged somewhat from the, from the glare of the sun and she saw that the faces, likewise, were not faces at all. Just gnarled wood hacked and scraped and indented until rough lines suggested brows the sockets of eyes, the line of a nose, tight-lipped mouths set in sneers or clenched snarls of pain. Above, further rough sculpting suggested hair, a few flakes of paint, yellow or black, clinging there. 
though the river weeds hanging from the heads as they hung likewise from shoulders and arms did a better job of resembling the lank hair of dead things arisen from deep water. The tall woman or monstrous imitation brushed Mary's soft human cheek with her damp, cold, rigid parody of a hand. Mary cried out, darting back, back up and sidelong to escape, losing her footing on the bank's slender edge, falling, falling into the raging water alongside, hitting its icy chill and the rocks within it with a, with, with a cry of pain. The current caught her, swirling her away, dragging her under, bobbing her up. Those three wooden figures still visible through half-engulfed eyes as they stood on the edge and watched her go. And then she was churned onward, onward, downstream, downhill, choking on mouthfuls of silty water and froth, the cold hitting her like a, like, like a succession of electric shocks. Her body being battered over rock after rock, she, she supposed she was drowning and something in her. After all she had fought and survived to get there, after having survived her own unjust death once already three Christmases ago in a Glaswegian gutter, gave her the, the, the strength to reach out and grab a length of fallen, upended bush that hung down towards the water from the bank above. Clinging there, she attempted to drag herself up, up and clear of the current. But the wood of the bush was slender and fragile wherever she grabbed it and it kept snapping. Even as the water blow kept trying to, to renew its absolute hold upon her, she, she, she cried out with pain and cold and frustration, struggling to, to, to grab a firmer grasp. And then, and then something caught hold of her near the wrist. It was a, a hand, a man's hand, thick and covered with wiry black hair on its back. Another hand caught her coat and dress at the back of her neck and together these hauled her out of the water, dragged her all the way up onto the snowy bank above, casting her, her down into a kind of slumped sitting position by an icy rock. The water continuing to thunder and foam directly beneath her. Her rescuer sank to one knee, close by, roaming dark eyes over her, more like a, like a fisherman who'd hooked a trout fit for skewering and roasting than a generous saviour. His wild head of black hair streaked with the darker shades of grey, 
Scruffy beard of similar hue and great ragged hang of black overcoat torn at several seams together confirmed him as the figure she had been fleeing. Under that coat, his clothes looked a, a patchwork of colours and fabrics dragged about him any old way. But behind that dishevelment, she sensed a a taunting hint of a half-ruined handsomeness buried in the general squalor. The grin that now broke out in the thick of that beard, however, did its best to dispel any intuition of anything more agreeable about him. And there was me, he said, thinking you would avoid my company. But here we are, after all this long while back together again. What? What? You don't recognise me? No wonder, place I've been. Where have I been? Where do you think I've been? Where I got put as well you know. Where? Where? Hell is where. Ever hear of it? I bet you did. The fires and all. The fires are cold. Did you know that? Colder than this. Colder than yon water you almost drowned in. Colder by a thousand million times. I see you shivering there. Shuddering in your scanties. That's sweet, darling. But the shudders went through me so much deeper. But still, still, look at me, look at me, I coined myself queer, swam myself all the way back here and for why, answers Darwin, answers for a start, where are they, what did you do with them, where did they go, he had lurched closer above her, still Quaking convulsively after her soaking in the icy water, she she tried to, to to drag herself further back, but he was he was large now, in the space above her, wolfish, stinking like an animal, and she the lamb in reach of his fang. Wasn't it me? He went on. I've been sat out in that snow days now. Watching, watching, seeing nothing, nothing for certain, nothing but him going and then coming back, coming back with you. For what? Old times sake, I'll tell you about old times, because though I've seen nothing, I've, 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 what would you call it? Sensed? Aye, aye. Everywhere, here, in these trees, haven't you? In the snow, in the moonshine, in the bright white sun, sensed. Haven't you? Haven't you? Don't you look at me like that. You must have done, for they're, they're everywhere. You see, you hear, you feel. Corner your eye, just for a second, then they're, then they're gone. Echoes and... 
no sound to leave the echo in the first place and a feeling of, of, I know they're here, you see, and I want you to tell me where they are. He grabbed her wet hair, dragged her shivering face up close to his. She could see amid the savage set of his features that his eyes were sore with tears. You're going to tell me, he insisted. You're going to tell me because you know and I know that you know and if you don't tell, well, I'm going to have to shove your bonny head back under that water there. Hold it there till the truth's spat out and you're no more trouble to me at the very least from here to kill. Please understand. The place I was shoved Oh, it puts you in that frame of mind to kill what killed me and steal back what was stolen from me. You hear? I want a simple answer. And I'll take my simple fist and... He paused. The aforementioned fist drawn taut and suspended close above her face. But his own face had had shifted sidelong, staring into the snowy forest, the so silent forest, every falling flake muffling it a little more. But he was listening, she could tell, to that stillness, listening hard, and a long second later, as if that silence had shouted sore in his ear, he threw her aside, leapt to his feet and, and stared into the trees, all in a single convulsion. And now Mary herself, wearily dragging herself upright at his back, seemed to hear, hear, Something singing, screaming, speaking out of that vibrant white silence between the receding tree trunks. It was a sound like the sharp, violent notes of children's laughter. Where are you? He bellowed into that blank whiteness. It's me! I came back! Back from the dead! Back for you! Where are you hiding? I came back to find you! To get hold of you! To take you! Where are you? But only the soundless fall of snowflakes answered. That hint of laughter gone from Mary's hearing. And it rapidly became clear from his likewise. He swivelled back towards her. All right, you hear? You hear? He cried. They are here. And I want you to tell me. But he said no more as Mary smashed hard in his face the foreign branch she had gathered up from the snowy ground. The impact of the blow threw him about, 
He dropped face down towards the snow, raining spots of blood before him. Mary started to run past him, fumbling about, stupefied upon the ground. He grabbed at her ankle. She beat him again with the branch. The branch broke. She let it go and ran on. Again she was dashing, slipping, stumbling, fumbling upward through the forest density. But sheer panic seemed to, to, to sharpen her mind and in no time at all or so it seemed she was she, she she was scrambling, scrambling up the snowy slope that took her to the raised ground on which the doctor's house stood. Reaching the front porch, she, 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 she fumbled for the key she had taken and slid it into the lock, looking over her shoulder to see if she was pursued. The key did not work. Or, 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 or no, rather, she, she, she realised the door was already unlocked. She, she, she pushed it open, ran into the hallway beyond, ran straight into Dr. Craigie. As he stood there in his overcoat and snow-crusted boots, she drew back a step, told him in, 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 in rapid stutters just, just what she had been through. The doctor listened with a solemn, barely blinking stare and then turned away walked to a cupboard set in the panelled wall below the staircase. He opened it, drew out a shotgun, slid a couple of cartridges into the twin barrels and several more into his pocket, closing the cupboard's door and stepping back towards her. Please, Mary, he said, I want you to wait here. Close the door behind me. Close it and lock it. I'll be back shortly. You get upstairs and uh, get out of those wet things. And then he was moving for the front door. She grabbed at his arm. But, but you can't, she said. That, 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 that man, whoever he is, he, he said, I mean, whatever he wants, he says that he's here to... I know what he's here for. The doctor calmly replied. And I know who he is and what's to be done about him. And while you wait here, here will you be safe, I promise you. I'll get out there and do it. This house has fallen under his shadow too long already and I think I know just how to banish him. Exorcise him even. Please, lock the door. And then he was pulling the door open, stepping out onto the snowy front steps and snapping shut the breech on his gun. He glanced back at her, nodded. She closed and locked the door. Did so swiftly, so he wouldn't see the shudder of more than cold that went through her.
And there we end this episode, folks. If you want to know what the heck is going on here and what the possibly fatal consequences are going to be, why, you better be here, same time, same place, next week. For some more appropriately seasonal chills. And chills they will be, I promise. In part three of the ghosts of Christmas past. Meantime, please be careful. Look out for snowmen.